we got a call from a reporter saying, Newt Gingrich, who is then Speaker of the House, has listed you as one of the top three programs to be zeroed out. And so that for me was like, okay, like we're on, let's go. (laughs) Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Jay Toscano, is a very experienced political media strategist. He is the founding partner at his new firm, Backstory Strategies, and was for a bit a partner at 76 Words, and before that worked for 20 plus years at GMMB, one of our largest political media firms. We had a great conversation about Jay's career path, and he gamely responded to my worries about the politics of our time and our difficulties as a party in communicating effectively. You'll want to listen. So first, my sponsor, then my interview with Jay Toscano of Backstory Strategies. Launching a campaign? Change Digital launches campaign websites in as little as 72 hours using your templates built with your goals in mind. Choose your template, submit website content, and we'll take care of the rest. You'll also get social and email templates that are easy to use and match your website's look and feel. For less than $1,800, launch your campaign with a professional digital presence starting on day one. Visit changedigital.us to learn more and get started. So Jay, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. So my name is Jay Toscano. I'm a media consultant working with Democratic candidates and causes and different types of organizations. I uh, grew up in Connecticut and uh, went to Central Connecticut State University, studied political science, and uh, at some point decided I needed to get to D.C. because I had, uh, as a young kid, done a you know a D.C. trip with my family and really fell in love. And I remember sitting in the House Gallery, you know, as a kid and thinking, "Wow, this is where it happens." Like that may happen in other you know in other venues for other kids at that age, like you know basketball courts or football stadiums. But for me, it was in Congress, and I really wanted to get there. So I packed my car up. Uh, drove to DC, slept on my brother's couch in his office for a month or two as I kind of went door to door looking for an internship on the Hill. I think that's uh, such a common story, the attractiveness of the nation's capital to young people. How was that job search? How did it go? So I, uh, you know, I mean, back then, you know, internships were unpaid, so the stakes were lower. I walked into the office of then newly elected special election congressman, Joe Kennedy, and said, I'm here to help. I've got a resume that has almost <laughs> no skill on it, but they brought me in and I ended up doing the internship, working there for most of uh, that year, actually had some amazing experiences, learned a lot. And then I uh, went on to become the communications director of the House Democratic Caucus, which was a huge jump for me, having been an intern with no experience to taking on a job that I felt, you know, was really central to helping 
Democrats develop message around what's happening on the House floor any any single day, whether it's like crime bill or economics or anything else. That is really rare to make a jump like that. Did you know somebody? Were you just an incredible communicator? How did you get spotted and how did you find that? Yeah, look, I would say like my career has all has been based on luck and being in the right place at the right time. When I walked into the office of the Democratic Caucus with my resume in hand, there had been a uh, shift in leadership. Cindy Hoyer had become chair of the caucus. I walked in literally as they were setting up the office. There was an executive director and an executive assistant. They needed someone to do communications. Somehow I sold myself in and got that job. Working under Steny Hoyer is a, I mean, he's a, a great mentor for like any staff. And so I was there five years and, you know, went from knowing nothing to, you know, shortly thereafter writing. A, we put these task forces together around all different issues, again, trying to derive a common ground message around these issues for Democrats. This was in 1991, going into the 92 elections. And so what we did in that process over the course of a year, which was controversial, like committee chairs didn't like a rogue group of members that we had put together talking about, you know, something that might fall within their jurisdiction. But we thought it was really essential to bring together all voices from across the caucus and say, like, what can we talk about on the economy? What can we talk about on defense spending? Or at that point, the, what was called the, the Cold War dividend. Our work then led into the platform for 92 for Bill Clinton. We worked like really closely with the campaign to dovetail our messaging kind of coming out of Congress with that of our nominee. Steny Hoyer's been such a fixture for so long in the House. I mean, he's right at the top of the leadership, right behind Pelosi, right? And I don't think people always grasp the kind of skills it takes to get to a position like that or to hold a position like that. What's your own experience with what he's like behind the scenes and as a member? I think I think Steny, he brings a lot to the job. I mean, he obviously is a fierce Democrat and, you know, fights for democratic principle. I mean, that's what we were doing back in that day when he was the young buck, by the way, <laughs> like ironically, when we were, you know, trying to bring the caucus together around around issues. I think he has a really uh, unique ability to be a fierce partisan at the same time work across the aisle in a way that engenders trust. He was on the Appropriations Committee, which, you know, historically had had a kind of bipartisan nature to it, even in terms of how they structured the subcommittees. And I think that, you know, coming out of that experience for so long, he knew how to work with, you know, moderate Republicans, even Republicans further over on the right, where they saw some common ground around an issue. I think he built a lot of goodwill with with folks in Congress. I think it's why he's been elected and reelected to leadership. As I said, he's a terrific mentor. So not just for staff, but when you think about the work he does, you know, he goes into districts that other leaders can't go into and works with candidates to help bring them along, help provide resources. I think he has a really great, um, almost fatherly or grandfatherly approach to younger folks that for, you know, me starting out in politics with nothing, man, I glommed onto him. And I just like, you know, tracked him all over the Capitol. He knew every in and out of that building and all the people. And you learn an enormous a lot when you're associated with somebody who is willing to spend a little time with you. What are some of the things you learned? Like, obviously, you're in political communication still, right? That got you launched on it. What did you learn about how to communicate political things from that job and maybe from him? 
the job that I had then and working with someone like him who, who you know, can go into a lot of districts, talk to a lot of people that a lot of, you know, Democrats can't necessarily uh, convene with was really helpful. It was it was about taking these issues out of the con- out of the construct that we normally associate them with in a legislative process and approach them from the perspective of just real people and what they're hearing coming out of Congress, right? I always kind of associate with with literally every time I write something, like, how's my dad going to react to this? He passed a long time ago, but like, how would my parents, you know, I grew up in a very blue collar, my dad worked in the factory, you know, kind of a, kind of neighborhood and existence. And I always think about the people I grew up with and think, I mean, frankly, most of the people I went to high school with are still in the same hometown I grew up in. They never left, never got out. A few of us did. I always think about how what we are talking about resonates or doesn't resonate with the folks I grew up with. That's something that like with because Denny comes from, you know, similar kind of background um, in terms of his life and also his political career. It's something that, you know, I learned with him. And I remember like early on, I was his speechwriter, him saying, you're going to come down to Southern Maryland with me this weekend and we're going to go talk to some folks. And that for me was like a huge learning experience because to be in the room, to hear him, hear him saying my words to folks and seeing how they reacted or resonated or didn't with certain aspects of it was like so powerful. If you were going to give advice to someone starting off down a path like that, what would Mm -hmm. you tell them? Well, first of all, I think being a good writer is a great starting point. I think, I think being willing to take risks and being bold in your writing, if you have somebody like Sydney, like we did a lot of writing back and forth and I have been fortunate, you know, I've worked with a number of really good writers across my career. Pramila Jayapal is an amazing writer. You know, when I first started working with her, I sat down and read a book that she had written about her life and times growing up in India and literally highlighted sentences that I were like, wow, like this is an amazingly constructed sentence, really evocative. Uh, Donna Edwards in Maryland, same similar thing, like really great writers where we get into this kind of back and forth. It makes my writing better. It also helps me find our candidate's voice. And for me, the, I think the number one thing coming out of what I would say to, you know, someone who wanted to enter the space is, you know, your job is really to help a candidate, help a person, help a cause find its voice, right? It's not about taking message points and just kind of regurgitating them and trying to force them out of somebody's mouth. It's about taking these issues that they care about. It's what I referred to earlier in terms of like, what, what actually motivates someone? That's ultimately what voters want to know. They can disagree with you on a lot of issues, but if they get a sense from how you speak about what motivates you as a person, where your heart is, where your priorities are underlying, then you can win over a lot of people that you can't talking about like the latest, you know, talking points coming out of a political party. What caused you to leave and go to AmeriCorps? So at five years, um, Steny's uh, chairmanship was term limited. So he had, he had, finished out a term and then done two full terms. And at that point, I was actually, um, I was up for a similar job on the Senate side. And the night before I was supposed to go in for the final interview, I'd been really thinking about it. And I, you know, I thought, man, I've had an amazing experience here. I've had the best job in the world. I've learned so much in five years in terms of what I do. And I can go kind of do that and keep doing that on the Senate side, obviously a little more kind of glamorous, (laughs) you know, in DC terms. And, you know, obviously take on new issues, you know, through the Clinton administration. But I felt at that point, like I'd learned most of what I was going to learn out of this kind of position. And 
I, at that point, I felt like I really wanted to do something different, learn something new. And AmeriCorps was new then, right? That was a Clinton uh, initiative. Yeah. So AmeriCorps was, uh, you know, when, when the, uh, some folks called me and said, Hey, there's this opening in the administration, you should go look at it. I kind of wasn't interested at first. At first I thought, you know, the legislation has been passed, the political battles over, why would I go just go help run a program like that? Um, I, I went over finally and met with um, Eli Siegel, who was the head of it at that point, you know, Bill Clinton's campaign head. And I just a fell in love with the idea of the program of expanding the idea of national service as a common experience and expectation of as you know, many young people as we possibly could. And there was a political battle brewing. So while I was sitting there on a Friday night talking with Eli and with Rick Allen, who was the external affairs officer at the time, we got a call from a reporter saying, Newt Gingrich, who was then Speaker of the House, has listed you as one of the top three programs to be zeroed out. And so that for me was like, okay, like we're on, let's go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I almost missed those battles. At least they were over policy and not over the democracy. As bad as Gingrich was, I mean, and was, and as partisan as he was, and as much as he was the cause of a lot of the deterioration of the country, uh, at least the, at least those battles made more sense to me. So, you know, I actually ran into him in an airport. We were on a delayed flight back to DC. I was sitting down on the floor, tons of people around reading a paperback and he comes walking across the lobby and I saw him and I stood up and went to shake his hand and said, you know, hey, Mr. Speaker. And he looked at me with this look of like shock and like, almost like, oh man, not another crazy. I walked up to him and I shook his hand and I said, look, I worked for the Democratic Caucus um, and uh, for Sandy Hoyer. And I was in the Clinton administration, you know, as the head of public affairs for AmeriCorps. And I, my whole career has been fighting everything you believe in. But the way that you and Bill Clinton engaged each other around ideas and policy and principle, I really miss that. And I just want to say thank you for that. When was this? That was probably about 10 years ago. Yeah, it was before the, the Trump era. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Um, so if you were going to point to one notable thing from your AmeriCorps days, what, what sticks in your mind? Wow. I think for me, going out with a film crew. So one of the reasons that um, what, one of the aspects of AmeriCorps that was really attractive to me outside of the political battle, which I knew I could fight, like I had a, a lot of training in that was the um, the ability to manage a big team of folks, marketing people, and to learn how to do advertising. Because we had to do big recruitment drives across the country to get young people to sign up. We had to reach uh, parents of those kids to say, hey, this is a legitimate thing. It's okay for your kid to do for a year. It's a re actually a really great thing. And, you know, on one of the early trips, you know, I, I basically told the agency, look, I'm not going to be one of those clients who's going to, you know, micromanage everything you do but I want to come out, I want to go out with the film crew because um, I want to learn this. And so, and they were great. It was Ogilvy. And uh, so I went out with a film crew during some big floods out in the Midwest. And we went around and filmed AmeriCorps members who were out doing emergency response and doing sandbags and bringing food to people. And I felt like, man, this connection for me between this idea, right, of service to actually seeing it change people's lives. And not just the folks that they're helping. I would go in and do an orientation with a you know a group of 100 new recruits. 
And you'd have people from all over. And the first question I'd always ask is, what would you be doing right now if you weren't here? And you had some people who would, I mean, would say like, I'm, you know, I, I was going to law school. I decided to put that on hold for a year to come and do this to, I'd be, you know, on, on the street corners right now, probably like selling drugs to make some money. Right. Both true stories. And, but by the end of three weeks, these folks are like, uh, grouped up in teams of 12. They've developed, you know, who's leading, who's following, like kind of their dynamic. And by the end of it, you get this like really cohesive group who do anything for each other. And they come out of that experience, not just with the idea that we are kind of all in this together, but with like real actual leadership skills. And you think about someone who's, you know, 21, 22, 23 years old, you're not going to get that doing what I did, which is going to you know, be an intern somewhere. Right. Um, I think it's a really valuable experience. And the, the more that we can do to make that a common expectation of every single young person that you're going to go do this, you want to go do this. It's going to be a huge boon to your life and your career. A better country will be. Yeah. I mean, the people that I know, and that's many who've done Peace Corps or AmeriCorps, it's been an important developmental step for them as well as, as a great experience. I'm glad we have those programs and I hope we keep expanding them. Well, unfortunately, you know, part of what we were doing back at, towards the end of the Clinton administration was about making sure that these programs were going to be sustainable regardless of who's president. So obviously the Bushes have, you know, a big commitment to service with points of light. You know, one of the things that Bill Clinton always talked about was when he became president, the one thing that President George Bush I asked him was keep points of life, you know, fund points of light, because that was a really important initiative for him, which he did. And then in turn, when his son took over from Bill Clinton, he asked the same thing. Like, you know, you've been a big supporter of AmeriCorps, keep it going. Um, and to his credit, he did and actually doubled funding for it. And Funding continued to increase even th even throughout the Trump administration. It was obviously not a big focus of his, but folks further down made sure that the program was was well funded. It's nice when something good escapes sort of the partisan world, yeah. the polarized world, and just institutionalizes enough to keep going. Yeah. Um, what was next for you? So, you know, after we got um, all of the kind of marketing programs and everything like up and running, I, I was at AmeriCorps for three years in the administration. I was approached by a, um, at that point, relatively small to medium sized political media firm, GMMB, which is Guerrero, Margolis, Mitchell and Burns. And I'd work with Jim Margolis on a couple of projects for AmeriCorps. And um, again, coming out of that experience, I had learned how to do messaging I began to learn how the power of advertising to kind of carry messaging and making it, bring it to life for people with sound and music and voice and picture. I decided like, this is the route I want to take. And um, uh, Jim Margolis and Andy Burns approached me at the end of 97 and said, you know, what are you thinking about doing? <laughs> and I was like, well, I mean, I'm having a great time with this program and, you know, everything's great, but obviously, you know, the administration will come to an end. And so I um, talked with them and ended up going uh, over to their agency in 1998 and spent 20 years there, became a partner in 2006 or 2007, helped develop the political practice, brought in a number of uh, environmental clients because that was a big personal focus of mine, personal passion. 
did amazing work with candidates and causes and also did like a fair amount of non-political work, which I think is is noteworthy because I think some of the things that I learned, for example, you know, building a energy efficiency campaign for the state of New York, you know, totally not political, um, but learning how to use research tools to develop insight that actually motivates behavioral change versus what we normally do in political battle was incredibly interesting and informative to me. And it's stuff that I've tried to bring back into our political work in the media that we produce. What did you learn about running a business in the space when you were there? I learned that it takes a lot of time and energy and effort. And, you know, GMMB grew from, I think when I started, it was about 50 people to about 235. We um, developed big office in Seattle that handled a lot of the nonprofit work with big Northwestern foundations and uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco, a few other places. The thing that I learned more than anything was how to manage people and how to get the best out of people. And I did some leadership training to develop like what styles work best for me. And what I found was helping people fulfill their, their potential, which sounds trite, but in terms of clearing out roadblocks, you know, looking ahead, you know, at the work that they're doing, at the tasks that they're taking on, the projects that we're working on, to make sure that I'm kind of coaching them and pushing them from behind, making sure that they're getting the glory for their work and I'm taking the hit if something doesn't go well, but also looking ahead to make sure that, you know, any barriers that might be ahead of them, I can kind of jump out in front of and hopefully try to clear some of those out. And in a a big firm like GMMB, you have you have bureaucracy, you have, you know, all sorts of things that can get in the way of the work that we do in the political space, which tends to be really fast, almost immediate turnaround on things, which in other contexts doesn't really exist. If you're doing advertising for, you know, for example, the energy efficiency campaign I did in New York State, we did research for that for probably about six to eight months. We had a creative process that ran, you know, probably about three months from conception to filming. And so, you know, totally different, totally different mindset, totally different size budgets, totally different sense of what we needed to do. And I think that as political media has changed, you know, we're now producing streams of video content for candidates in particular, like on a daily basis. And you have to reshape your structures and your infrastructure to support that and do it in a way where you're not losing money. And that was like one of the biggest concerns at a big firm like that, which is when you're built to do these big multi-year, multi-million dollar campaigns for foundations, for example, how do you then turn around and say, oh, candidate needs something tomorrow to respond to something that happened tonight. And by the way, it can't cost a whole lot. (laughs) So how do you do that? I know something more about running a product business and how to scale that than I do about a service business, though I have a little one that's about seven people besides me. But we've already started to struggle with the difference between a big project and a rapid small project. What does work? So I think that's a big struggle within the political media industry right now. I think that there are a number of firms that uh, are resisting making that transition and are making good money, not making that transition to make that okay. (laughs) For me, you know, I left GMMB in 2017 because I saw what was happening. I saw what was coming and I had a bunch of first time candidates in 2018 and I felt like, I mean, I love the firm. I love the people, the smartest people in the world, by the way. Um, I felt like I needed to kind of break out. I was sitting at a partner, all day partner meeting, 21 people around a table. And I thought, 
I should really be out working with my candidates right now. And the structure of this business is changing in such a way that uh, that made breaking out of that structure important for me. And so, you know, I moved out and for me, the scale, the scale changed overnight because it's, it's me uh, working out of a home office. I've got, you know, a really a, a pro editor, creative partner. I've got a team of folks that I use for production, for shooting, who work with me in a creative partnership kind of way. Didn't you start with 76 words and then move on to another, to, to your current backstory? Which are you talking about right now? Yeah. So in, in 2017, I left GMMB and um, ran into the, some of the principles from 76 words, totally coincidentally at a reception. And we just started talking about creative. And I, I said to them, I'm at a big firm. When we talk about who we are worried about in this space, everyone talks about like other big firms. And I always talk about like small firms like you all, like 76 words, because you have the ability to change with the industry as it's changing and to do really interesting creative work. And one of them at some point said, if you're ever interested in leaving GMB, let us know. And I said, I've already, I'm leaving, actually. I decided that I'm leaving. And so we had a conversation. I ended up going in with them for that cycle, and which was great. And we had a great creative partnership. Coming into the 2020 cycle, I realized that because of COVID, because of of um, firewalls, because of a lot of I was doing a lot of presidential IE work, I ended up doing most of the work on my own at home, <laughs> working with folks who are freelance, like with this creative partner that I've been working with over the course of the last couple of years. And so, at the end of the 2020 cycle, it just made a lot of sense to kind of break the ties with 76 and create my own thing. Just before we leave 76, tell me a little about that firm. You know, who, who are the principals there and what is their niche? Sure. So 76 um, was founded by Sarah Flowers and Matt Erickson, uh, who had come out of a previous, you know, firm back in, I think, 2010. Um, they were together for a number of years. And then um, uh, Colin Rohiro and I joined, I think, in like 2017. Colin may have been a year before me. They do a lot of creative work, creative media with candidates of color. Colin is a native Spanish speaker, grew up in Florida. And so he has worked with a lot of candidates who um, who have, you know, large voter populations who are Hispanic. He's worked with Latino Victory Fund and other groups like that. That That's kind of his niche. I think Sarah and Matt have done a lot of work with Planned Parenthood and some of the kind of like mainstream progressive groups. And I think they continue to do that. So you, you went out on your own. Um, why backstory strategies? Why that mm-hmm. name? So over the past couple of years, I've, I've been doing workshops with a, with a, a film producer, director who has a, you know, interesting approach to storytelling. And it's really, uh, it kind of rejects the hero's journey. It's built around feeling and emotion and action. I think one of the best examples of her work is the series uh, Transparent. And if you think, if you've watched it, if you think about it, there is no hero. There's no villain. The entire series is built around the relationships between people. And this director has kind of built a kind of a niche in working with film producers and directors to try to build in more of that storytelling 
that's built around feeling and emotion. I've taken a bunch of workshops with her. And one of the things where I think that there's a translation over to politics is around backstory. It's around when we are marketing a candidate, when we're promoting a candidate. If you're a Democrat, people generally know where you are on most issues. If you're a Republican, people may know where you are on most issues. There's not a lot of discernment. And I think that where voters are looking right now is for anything that feels authentic, anything that feels like I know where this person's coming from. And a lot of that is their backstory. It's, you know, how did they grow up? What are the things that drive them? What motivates them to run for office? I worked for, you know, Dr. Kim Schreier when she first ran for Congress in 2017, 2018. She ran as a, a moderately progressive Democrat. So you knew, like, you could do the poll and, you know, healthcare, and you know exactly what she needs to talk about. We talked a lot about what motivated her in terms of her being a pediatrician, working with families, having a child herself. And really kind of built the campaign, you know, every ad we did referenced that and, you know, like leaned into who she was as a person less than, you know, the issues. One of the best examples of that was when I first interviewed her um, at the beginning of the campaign, I asked her about, about gun control, about gun, gun issues, any personal experience, anything like that. And she said, yeah, you know, as a pediatrician, when I get a call from a parent of a, of a young boy, you know, teenager, preteen, and they're worried about them being depressed, having emotional issues, things like being withdrawn. She said, my first question is always, is there a gun in the house? In the house? Because boys are much more susceptible to harming themselves with a gun than girls are. And I always ask if there's a gun in the house and make sure if, if there is that it's locked away. That became our ad. And, you know, I, I was out working with her for a couple of weeks, prepping for her first candidate forum. And as we were driving out there, I said, tell that story because you're going to be on a, on a panel with a bunch of Democrats. Everyone's going to use the same talking points <laughs> right off the poll. Don't do that. Tell that story because I want to see how people react. This is very early in the campaign. I sat in the audience. She told that story and the room just got quiet. People looked at each other and like, ooh, wow. And I was like, okay, that's our ad. <laughs> that's We're telling that story in our gun safety ad, which is what we did. That ad tested when we did you know, our, our research, tested better than any other ad that we produced that cycle. Yeah. There's something, there's something to it. It's hard to find that thing, I think, for each candidate. And that's where some of the art is in your work. How is the company going? We've had, we've had a great run. I mean, you know, in 2020, you know, we... We did a lot of IE work um, and um, presidential IE work. So is that like working for super PACs or? Working for, yeah, working for groups like uh, League Conservation Voters, um, uh, Vote Vats, different groups like that. And so this is a great story. So at the beginning of 2020, I had a conversation with the head of Vote Vats, who's I've worked with over the years since 2011. And you know, going into 2020, I said, you know, you guys, VoteVets has always been kind of like a pass-through IE, where they get money from Senate Majority PAC, other like the, the like the big boys on, you know, on the block and super PAC land um, to, to run ads against Senate candidates or for Senate candidates, House and things like that. We have an opportunity for you guys to kind of break out of that this cycle because Donald Trump is the going to be the nominee, obviously. Veterans have a special voice in politics. And it's really hard for anyone to kind of go up against them. 
encountered them. And I said, we should like really lean into that. You know, we saw the first ads coming out of Lincoln Project and Midas Touch and things like that. And we were like, we can go just as hard as they can. We are also have the benefit of being a progressive democratic group that actually has the voice of veterans. We began a, uh, a process of developing video ads going at Trump. We watched what was happening in the cycle. So, for example, when the Atlantic story came out that Trump had referred to people in the military as losers and people who died on the battlefield as suckers, that story came out at five o'clock at night from the Atlantic. I called my client and I said, can we get parents of fallen troops to record something really fast on their phones? I'll send you a quick script. I'm going to send you a bunch of questions because I don't want to tell them what to say. I want to get the responses. I'll tell them exactly how to do it. Like hold a phone up like this. Here's how you do it. Answer these questions. Have them email those to me because we're going to put together a response. Um, About an hour later, the group Gold Star Parents got engaged, got a bunch of people. I started getting video kind of into my email. I started sending stuff to my editor. I'm then pulling all of these videos together to develop a script out of it. Get that over to my editor. Um, we were literally working through the night. I was actually at my brother's house and I was like, you're finally going to understand what I do for a living. <laughs> we were sitting there watching a, a baseball game and I held up the first video I got and I said, see this? And they all watched it and they were like, wow, that's really cool. And I said, okay. And so worked through the night. They all went to bed. I was sitting in the kitchen, you know, online with my editor as we're editing this thing together at uh, 8 a.m. We're done. We uh, post the final ad to the MSNBC file server so that at 8.32, it aired for the first time on Morning Joe. Um, MSNBC then played that ad every hour. Every time they did a story about, about the Atlantic story from the night before, they ran our ad at the top of the hour. That was because we were watching what was happening and we were like able to move like that. We did that all year. We ended up generating over 45 million views, all organic, not including what we did paid. We were able to raise the not just the profile of vote bets, we were able to build out their list, raise a bunch of money that we then put into the IE program in the fall to support House candidates in, in tough races. It sounds like you kind of came alive with that opportunity, like that you've been doing this for 30 years or something like that, but you're still very engaged when that kind of moment happens. It's exciting to you. What's the, what are you, what are the feelings around that? Yeah. Well, you know, the first feeling is always, oh, it's going to be another all nighter. Yeah. Um, why am I still doing this? <laughs> <laughs> so there's some but, of that for sure. Absolutely. But, um, but for me, you know, look, I, 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 to some degree, kind of played it safe while my kids were growing up. I was like, I can't, you know, I had nothing come into this. I can't risk their security because I want to go play politics and, you know, take risks. And so once my youngest daughter was out of college, I felt some freedom to, you know, to explore. That's when I left GMMB because, again, it was like I'd been there exactly 20 years. I could have stayed. It could have been comfortable, like financially comfortable, Um, didn't have to take a risk. And I felt like, okay, I've never taken a risk though. Like this is my time. This is my moment. And against someone like Donald Trump, where 
you know, I did ads for Lincoln Project for, you know, with Sully Sullenberger, with um, the Vinmans, um, Rachel and Alex Vinman. And I remember having a camera crew show up at one of our shoots to say, you know, start talking about what Lincoln Project was doing. And they were like, wait a minute, you're a Democrat. Like, why are you working with these guys? And I said, look, there's an existential threat to our democracy here. If we don't win this election, like we have to win it. And if if Lincoln Project is able to hold a group of Republicans, give a group of Republicans who are predisposed to vote against Trump this time around, give them a safe place to be. Hey, there are a bunch of other Republicans out here like that. And I can help that. And I can support that. I'm going to do that. Doesn't mean I'm going to not, you know, turn around and fight against them the next day. No, they they were our allies. They, and I think they still are our allies going into the next two. We'll see beyond that. And that sounds like interesting work, honestly, and, and important work. What's an ideal client for you? An ideal client is someone who takes creative seriously. And it's really hard to find that these days, especially especially among the big organizations. Um, Vote, Vote Vets for me is the best example of that as I you know, kind of talk through. You know, John Soltz is the head of that. We work hand in hand on the creative. You know, I don't come, I mean, I, yeah, I obviously I write scripts and I come on with concepts, but they're very interactive with me to making good ideas better. And they're willing to invest in it. They're willing to give me some latitude and they're willing for things to fail. And I think that that, I think that that's what we're losing in a lot of the political media that we're doing. I think we have an opportunity here where we're, again, we're creating streams of video content for, for our clients all the time. It's not like, you know, when I got into this business 20 years ago, you know, it'd be like, okay, we're going to produce some ads for the fall. We're going to do that over the summer. We're going to take our time and then our job's done, right? Some TV ads, we're going to put some big buys behind it. Probably like 80%, like 80, 90% of the actual con, like the content percentage of content of what we produce is stuff that's, that's digestible in a couple of days, right? It's all digital and it's all aimed at like landing at the right moment and making a splash and making an impact. And one of the things that we learned at Vovats was like, if you can't make it, like sometimes things are just moving too fast. You have to know, okay, we're going to move past this one. We're going to set up for next week and not get caught up in like, well, we have to make this thing work even if it's three days late. It's not worth it. Drop it, move on to the next thing. And I think being respectful and uh, and valuing creative and understanding the idea of timing is something that makes a good client. And right now there are very few organizations that are actually doing that. A lot of organizations will come in with, you know, what does the thousand point TV buy look like? What does the ad look like? Let's go out and do a bunch of research. That's an important part of it. There's a narrative there that has to be driven. What we're doing in the kind of every day, though, in a lot of ways, is engaging voters, engaging the public in a conversation that's going on. And often we tend to wait until the very end and think, oh, we're going to reverse all that damage that's been done over the course of the past year because we're going to put 1,500 points behind an ad versus 1,000 points. Those days are long gone. It seems like there's got to be a balance between saying the things that you want to say and finding the hook like you talked about before with the thing that uh, Trump had said. How do you make sure that you're not being diverted by the daily story or the weekly story versus staying with the campaign plan and and delivering the category of message that you want to be? 
Yeah. So I think a couple of things. One is I think if you're working for, with a candidate, our job is really to drive their that candidate's narrative, right? And increasingly now, as you look at the dollar figure shift way towards IEs, it's really important, even more so than it was in the past, for a candidate's voice to be clarion. Like we want to make sure, you know, every ad that we're putting up is delivering that framework and that message in that feeling and that we want to evoke an emotion because no one else is going to do that for us. The IEs are not going to do that. The IEs primarily going to attack each other and they're going to have anywhere from half to two thirds of the air power overpowering what we're doing. So our voice has to be really clearing. On the other hand, I think when you think about the roles of different organizations, I think it's really important. So, you know, everyone's talking about right now about Donald Trump and should we talk about him or should we not? In this cycle, I think that there are some organizations that absolutely should be talking about him. I think a, a group like Vote Vets, where we where they have really big issues around who he is and what he represents, I think having those voices out there, on a, like countering him at every, every at every step, countering what they're trying to do with misinformation in terms of influencing people who are in the military right now, there are important roles for that group to play that don't necessarily match up with what we may need to do with um, with candidates, for example. I don't know that candidates need to talk about Donald Trump a lot. I definitely know that there are some groups that absolutely need to. So I think it's like discerning roles. We shouldn't be playing it like a group of eight-year-olds playing soccer where everyone's chasing the ball at the same time. You've somewhat indicated this by some of your stories, but what do you think makes good political creative and how has that changed over time? That's a great question. I don't know actually that it's changed over time. I think there are some universal principles that are really important in terms of storytelling. And I think anything that we're doing to engage people in a conversation that doesn't feel political, that feels real and true to their lives and their hearts right now, that's always been a really important part of of what we do. I think back to ads that I produced in, in 2006, for example, where we went hard negative against another candidate but did so in a storytelling way that when I look at the ad today, it doesn't feel negative because it was about someone's real experience with their child. And we were able to kind of like frame our opponent in a way that didn't feel like a hard negative hit. I think that's really even more important today. People are really cynical about any kind of political advertising. I think that aspect is really important. Um, the other thing I would say, like, so for example, like right now, I was actually just talking with a candidate this morning about this. If you're a parent, of a child in school right now, especially under a certain age where they're not getting vaccinated, there is a lot of despair. There's a lot of frustration. There is cynicism. And we are now in this place where a whole generation of kids have lost over a year of school. If you're a black or a brown student who, you know, already behind in terms of resources, you're even further back. No one on the on the political landscape is talking about that. No one's actually touching I, what I think is a really strong underlying emotion that a lot of parents aren't even even necessarily talking about yet, because the most important motivator for a parent is to take care of your child, right? To make sure you give them everything you can to provide for their safety. And right now, this society is letting them down. It's letting those kids down and those parents feel really responsible for that. And I think it's like cutting into their hearts. No one is talking about that. No one's actually touching that. We talk about it in a political way. Oh, we need to make sure we're funding schools and that they've got masks and tests and all that kind of stuff. 
And I think parents right now, like they understand this is a really complex and there's no easy answer. So I think the political system is always trying to spit out easy answers, right? It's just more money, more money, more money. And I think in a way, we're not actually connecting with parents the way we should be. That to me is a space where good creative that can connect a candidate with that really powerful emotion that motivates most parents around their kids could be a way for Democrats to turn things around the cycle. It certainly, if I were Republican, I would be looking at that as a way to come at us. Do do you think that there has to be connection between what a candidate says that, that resonates and what is possible in the policy arena? Like a lot of times I worry that collectively, like we're in this period right now of having in a certain way promised things we can't deliver politically. And that seems like it has got to undermine campaigning. When you think about making an ad for a particular candidate, to what extent do you worry about, are we saying we'll do something we can actually do? I I worry about that a lot. I worry about that right now. I think most people look at the Biden administration, look at Democrats in Washington and think you you all promised us we're going to be out of this. That's a promise nobody can really make, but there are other, I mean, more specific policy things, you know, that are not just sort of, uh, valence issues like that. I, I do. I mean, I think, I think we can talk about big issues in terms of our values, in terms of our vision, in terms of, you know, where we want to be. So for example, if you're a proponent of Medicare for all, um, you should talk about that, right? Even if it's just not going to happen or it's very unlikely to happen. Yeah, but I think you can talk about it in an aspirational way. Like that's where I think we we should go. And look, I worked with Pramil Jayapal in 2016. We had a big conversation about Medicare for all. Should we even talk about it? And we ended up, and first of all, she was not going to let us not talk about it, regardless of what the polling said. But we talked about it in the context of like, this is where I think we need to go. Here are steps that we need to take though right now that help solve the problem for people, which is around affordability, its own access and things like that. So I think it's okay to set out a vision. And especially for a political party of of ultimately where you think we should be, I think it's really problematic when we start making promises about what we can do. Especially, and people know, people look at Washington and they think it's a complete train wreck. You know, neither side can actually deliver on anything. They look at a, you know somebody like Donald Trump in 2016 who just said like I'm going to come and blow all that up because those people aren't listening to you and I will. Right? That was literally his framework, his message. That's what people want to hear. I think it's really problematic when we start making big promises about what we can do. I think people understand what's possible, what's not. And I think if you can connect to people and say, like, I'm going to go in there, I'm going to fight, and these are the things I'm going to work on, and I'm going to work across the aisle where I can. I I have some ideas on how to do that and some folks I might be able to work with. That's going to be much more saleable with a lot of voters than, you know, I'm going to go fight for this big promise that we have no shot at getting. The big challenge of the next two elections is where we're at risk of Republican control of Congress followed by a re-election of Trump or, you know, election again, whatever it would be called. And, and then sort of him picking up where he left off in his anti-democratic moves. So there's something at stake that's not normal politics anymore. On the other hand, people in general, don't, I don't think, grasp some of those concepts 
right? They're much more tied to their regular lives and maybe also hearing so much of the entirely reverse information that the Democrats are the threat. Both sides are yelling, you're the authoritarian or whatever, right? How do you campaign in that environment? Do you try to go after this existential threat potentially as as many people on our side see it? Or do you fight the kind of normal politics fight for your seat? That is a big question. I think that there needs to be a counter Trump effort. And, and I don't know that that is necessarily reaching regular voters, but I do think among more politically motivated voters, people who are, you know, watching what's happening, who are actually more engaged. I do think that we need to make those stakes really real. And I think that one of the things that we need to think about is how do we do that with groups who are, you know, you look at like black voters in the South who essentially elected Joe Biden. How do you draw the connection between their disappointment and disillusionment with what they actually got over the course of the past year and the threat ahead in a way that's going to motivate turnout in 2022? And I think like there are groups that are looking at different ways of doing that and whether it's like addressing Trump directly or finding other ways, it's a key question that we really need to be kind of researching through right now. I don't know that for candidates who are seeking, you know, either to pick up an, a seat or for incumbents who are, I think incumbents face the biggest risk right now in terms of rationalizing what's happened over the past year when people expected so much more and making a case for going back. and. I, I think that there's space for it if they are communicating in a way that voters understand not just the stakes, but also where these candidates, where these incumbents' hearts are. What are they really working on? What are they fighting for? Where do they stand out from their party? Not just not in terms of policy issues, but where they're actually actively working to get things done that are important back in the district. And I think it's it's hard in this larger context when the, I think, smart play for Republicans is to spend all of their money pointing out how Democrats have failed. I feel like on these midterms, like the two Obama midterms or the or 1994, you know, the, the midterms where we've really gotten blasted, that the Democratic playbook has been not to defend their president almost hearing that from you right now, but rather to have every candidate stand on their own and say, oh yeah, I, yeah, I'm embarrassed by the party or, or the president, but I'm different. I guess I think I would rather see collectively, I mean, like Biden is so much of a better president than his predecessor on every front. And so many of the things that he's done in terms of appointments and policy are the right things. And some of the things that haven't gone done are things that I wish had gotten done. So like, I'm happy that he's my president compared to what we had and compared to a lot of other people that could hold the office. This is a big collective action problem that, that we're failing at that the other side doesn't always seem to fail in the same way. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's a good point. It seems like the incentive for a candidate and a consultant is protect your own ass, run in your own lane, don't think about the party generally or the country generally. 
Am I wrong about that? Well, no, I don't think you're wrong about that. Well, I shouldn't say that. I think, yes, you're right about that. I think that a lot of people will look at the current situation and, and make that assessment. It's what we've done in the past. I think that as a party, we do not communicate <laughs> zero at all. And the donors aren't there to do something like that. Our party has historically not done that in the same way that the Republicans have over time. We spend a lot of money communicating. We spend a lot of money communicating, but we're not communicating in a in a consistent way across. There's no messaging central or there's many messaging centrals like where should that be located? Why do we not have that? Is that remediable? I think it is. I mean, when President Obama became president, he decided not to put a lot of that sort of resourcing into the DNC. And that's kind of the natural place for it. I don't know why we haven't done that. There's a a prerogative by people who are elected president, people who are leading the party to ha- to kind of like own that piece of it. But we have an enormous hole because we don't have an ongoing active communication construct that is communicating even with our own supporters, with our own voters in a way that makes them evangelist for the cause, right? To do what you just did in terms of defending Biden. We're not resourcing our most avid supporters to do that. And there, and to your point, there are groups, I mean, we have more money going into communications than ever before. There is absolutely no coordination. Well, there's some coordination, but there it's, yeah, yeah I mean, there's, there's yeah. coordination in terms of like, okay, you know, for the next three weeks, we need to do build back better ads. Who's got what, who's doing what, let's go and do it. But there's not like a long-term plan that begins at the beginning of a presidency that runs all the way through. If this moment when a guy who tried to steal the office for another four years and who is a liar and an awful human being is at the doorstep, doesn't wake us up, what is it going to take? I don't know. That's a, that's, that's a big question. I look at like vote vets right now is focused on disinformation in the military because there's an active effort on the other side to peel away enough active duty soldiers right now so that when Trump, you know, is in some position to claim the presidency, there are a bunch of people who aren't necessarily going to follow the orders, right? Or are going to be confused about it, right? There's, I mean, we are doing many things, many small things, some ambitious things, but like, I don't know, I recently looked at the history of Hitler coming to power and, you know, and I'm no expert on it, but what I saw was over many years, a sequence of inexorable events in German regular politics that step by step through both normal politics and breaking rules and violence on the streets and all kinds of things, that guy maneuvered his way into absolute power. And we're not immune from this kind of thing. Well, yeah. In fact, there's a new group um, called Beer Hall Project that just launched two weeks ago that actually draws that naturally very directly. I did their launch video and, you know, everyone says you can't, you know, you can't touch Hitler. (laughs) Like if you touch Hitler, you lose. 
But the analogy is really true. And it's not just the violence in the street. When you look at the parallels between the two, it's all of that and infiltrating the political system to take it over, right? They tried violence. Violence didn't really work in the bear hall, in the bear hall push. They yeah. got, they, they basically came in through normal politics, more or less. Yeah. You know? And you, and you look at what Trump's doing right now to place people in, you know, in local office, in state election commissions and things like that. They're literally following the playbook. From 2015 to now, I've questioned myself almost every day, like about like what level of worry should I really have? And I don't know if I've figured that out yet, but, you know, I'm asking you my worried questions because, you know, this, it, it is, it is scary times. So you think about 2024 and you think about Donald Trump claiming reelection. He may win outright. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that is terrifying and unleash Donald Trump who has learned that he can do anything. That, that line about the velociraptors having not figured out how to turn the doorknobs was very, you know, like that really chilled my spine because it, it so evocatively said what it might be like. Like he knows now to put as attorney general, someone who will absolutely do what he says, et yeah. cetera. Yeah. So, so the, for me, the big question is in, you know, January, 2021, Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, all these guys who want to be president in 2024 had the chance to put like they could have put him you, out. They could have put, ended. Put the they could have like put the spike in his heart, what and the they fuck? didn't do it. I don't what, understand. I think it's again a collective action thing. Like if they did it together, but they all were thinking of just themselves, or they're cowards, you know. But they could have ended that in their own benefit, really. Together, yeah, yeah. It's it's astonishing to watch. It's fun talking to you. Is is there a question that I didn't ask that I should have? Am I hopeful for that? <laughs> are you? Are you? Uh, what's your you know, like, What's uh, your level of optimism about our political future? I have to say that I'm optimistic. I'm always been optimistic. You know, I'm the kind of person who will like take a hit and I'll feel bad for a minute, and then I begin to feel my own kind of brain and emotion begin to like find a way back to optimism. You're resilient. Sometimes, Sometimes very frustratingly, you know, like I watch it happening. Like, can I just wallow in the despair for just another minute? What we miss in politics is the big psychological shifts that underlie the um, our, our constituency. When when you look at you know whether it's people my age or you know my daughter's age, who's twenty seven, you look at the past twenty five years, and you have nine eleven that shook this country to the core in terms of its sense of invulnerability and security. You had the economic crash in 2008 that for a lot of people meant either I lost a house or I lost an enormous amount of value in my house and was not sure I was ever going to get it back. Um, and then you had Donald Trump being elected and COVID. In 20 years, the psychological impact on a society on these generations, as I was talking earlier about, you know, parents of young kids in school today who feel like, like this system that I am part of has totally let down my kids. I mean, it's interesting because we had World War One, depression, World War Two. You know, in the middle of that, we had a that flu pandemic. I mean, this isn't this isn't worse, right? 
I wasn't around. I don't know how to evaluate, but it seems like the right leader at the right time makes a big difference. You know, it, it does. And having, you know, I was thinking about if you, if you swept the field clean right now and said in 2024, what are the kind of things you would want in a president to lead this country? Yeah. You know, and a lot of it, like, frankly, sounds like Joe Biden. You want empathy. You want a, a sense of history. You yeah, maybe a little younger person. I'm trying to be happy with him. Um, but there doesn't seem to be Teddy Roosevelt style vigor coming out of the White House. Right. Sure. Yeah. And and I mean, I, I guess my point was not so much about Biden specifically, but thinking about should he, for example, decide I'm going to spend the next few years like figuring this COVID thing out and figuring out the economy and all of this stuff. I'm not running for reelection. And there is a inter-party, you know, understanding that we need to put a bunch of people forward and really figure out who we are as a party, where we're going forward. What does that candidate look like in terms of what are the attributes they need to bring to the table that would be helpful? For, I'm, not, I'm not talking about politically what's helpful for the party. Yeah. What's helpful for the country moving beyond this? How would you answer that? I, I mean, I do think someone who is um, younger, <laughs> definitely. Um, but, you know, someone who, you know, I think about like Bill Clinton in 1992, right? You think about someone who's optimistic, who you can't knock down, someone who is bullish on the country no matter what, someone who can speak bipartisan, even if they don't really mean it, and someone who can evoke a sense of empathy with people who understands what folks have been through. And not just in terms of the well, past year, a couple of years, but like over the course of the past 20 years, this country has taken enormous hits to its sense of security. And I think like finding someone who can bring all that together would be really important for the country. I mean, it's hard sometimes now post his administration, but the, you know, the Bill Clinton of that era had such an intellect and such a communication skills he could talk to an individual and he could talk to a group really well. And Obama had that too, right? But do you think there's somebody now that fits that bill? I think there are probably a bunch of people. I did a bunch of IE work for Pete Buttigieg. I think, I think he has a lot of that skill. I don't know that he has the age yet. He came to mind for me because he has the tongue. He, 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 he has the tongue and he has the empathy. And I think, I think he learned a lot from running that campaign and is learning a lot now. I think he's put it, he's put himself in position to learn a lot. I think Stacey Abrams has a, a lot of the empathy and the communication skill. I mean, she's amazing. She's got to win a, a race. She does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, hope she does. You don't, you're not working on that one, are you? No, no, no. Well, it's going to be a very exciting couple of years. You know, it's probably going to be a lot of white knuckle time. Yeah. Well, thanks for being a guest. Anything else you want to say? I'll just say what I said before we got on that, you know, I've listened to this podcast from the beginning. I've met with a lot of folks who I otherwise wouldn't have and have heard perspectives from people that we don't ordinarily get to spend a lot of time with. So I think it's a really valuable podcast. I appreciate that you do it. Well, I'm honored to hear you say that. And, and uh, thanks. That was Jay Toscano. Jay is at BackstoryStrategies.com. 
This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.